prayed about the Spirit coming and illuminating our minds. Let's turn to Genesis 23. I thank you, brothers and sisters, for your prayers this week. And I do implore you and, and, and covet those prayers that you pray for this preparation for preaching God's Word. But it does take the Spirit to take these stuttering lips and actually do something in your hearts. It's, it's not me, it's the Spirit. Uh, to us, the word pilgrim reminds us of quaint folk who came over on the Mayflower in 1620. We might have some pictures in our heads of them. <clears throat> we may think of their funny clothes and their brim hats. <clears throat> we may think of them around Thanksgiving time when we remember their celebration to God for bringing them through that first harsh winter. We might even think, as I was uh, this past week or, or two weeks ago, I was going through some of my kids' uh, papers from Miris, and, and there was the, a picture of how many people died in that first year after coming. They had the family groups in relief up here, and then and then the people that died in a lighter gray down below, and it was just a reminder to me how, how dedicated they were to God to come here and go through that. Some families were no longer there, and some of came over with five, and, and one was left. But we, do we identify with those pilgrims? The word pilgrim does not describe, actually, a Mayflower group of people so much as who they were. They were pilgrims. They were quite literally a people without a land. And God's word today encourages us not only to self-identify as pilgrims ourselves and learn anew what that might mean, but it challenges us to live as Abraham did, as a people Without a land. Look with me at verse 1 of God's Word in chapter 23 of Genesis. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites and the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites, 
of all who went in at the city gates. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of my sons of the people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down from before the the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if if you will, hear me. Give me the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land is worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron. And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver according to the weights, according to the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was at the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the city gate. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Between chapter 22 and 23, we have probably about a 25 or 30 year time lapse. So here we are, that time forward, and Abraham is about 137. Isaac, his son, is in his mid-30s, at some, somewhere in there. And Sarah is 127, and we're told that at that age she died. Abraham's wife of over 60 years is now gone. And our text says that Abraham was heartbroken over this. Verse 2 tells us that he mourned and wept for her. Probably in the Middle Eastern tradition of going in and, and tearing his clothes, of putting ashes on his head, pulling parts of his beard out to show externally what was happening internally. Abraham is obviously devastated here, as each of us would be. And it's a major event in Abraham's life. It's a major event in the book of Genesis. Sarah is dead. But Sarah's death is not the point of this chapter. It's not the lesson, this is not a lesson about Christian grief. It's not about the Christian approach to death, how do we deal with it? It's not about how long Sarah lived or how she finished well. That's not the main point of this chapter. We could certainly talk about such things, but we would miss the main point. So what is the main point? I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to unpack it. The main point of this chapter, the main thing that God wants us to learn from this chapter is, live like a pilgrim with a promise. Live like a pilgrim with a promise. So let's unpack that first part. Living like a pilgrim. Here we see right off that Abraham himself identifies, self-identifies as a pilgrim. Look at, with me at verse 2. He 
He says, it says that Sarah died in the land of Canaan. Abram went in to mourn. And it says in verse 4, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. I am a sojourner and foreigner. In Hebrew, the word there for sojourner or alien in the NIV implies a person that has no residential rights. No residential rights. One who has permanently left his homeland and is living in another country. We know, going back 11 chapters, that that was God's intention from the very beginning. If you remember the first call in the first couple verses of chapter 12, God said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your nation. Leave and go to the land I'll show you. In other words, he's calling him to be a sojourner. He's calling him to be an alien in this land. There's a permanent call placed on God, by God on Abraham to leave Ur and to become a sojourner. It also uses the second word there, of foreigner, or NIV says stranger. The Hebrew there connotes a person who owns no land, who owns no land, who lives like a tenant. So Abraham is declaring before the Hittites, before the, the Canaanites there, for all to hear that even though I live here and I've been here for years and years and years, and obviously there's some respect that has been developed, right? Because they, are, they say, no, you're a great prince. We respect you. But he's declaring to them, I have no legal rights here. I'm, I'm not standing here and asking because you owe me anything. I, I am owed nothing. I'm quite literally a tenant living in your good graces. Could you imagine Abraham, who, who, who is very wealthy, very well respected, standing up and taking a very low position? He's declaring himself a nomad. I'm a nomad. I'm a pilgrim. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 19, which, by the way, pretty much exegetes the chapters we've been going through. So if you really want a, a shorthand of what Abraham's life is all about, look at those verses. He states it like this. By faith, he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country, living in tents. It goes on to say, as did Isaac and Jacob. Abraham was and thought of himself as, and that's important, a pilgrim. Have you ever traveled away from home? For us Mainers, that's Massachusetts and New Hampshire. We feel. And have you ever felt out of place? Perhaps gone to another part of the world? Personally, when I lived in Tokyo, Japan, that kind of defined that two years of my life. I not only looked like an outsider and dressed like an outsider and sounded like an outsider, they called me an outsider. I mean, their, their kind of polite way of talking about you is calling you a gaijin, which is translated foreigner. So they're constantly talking about you as a foreigner. Foreigner this, foreigner that, foreigner this, foreigner that. And so I'm, I'm feeling like that all the time. And I'm, I'm living in, in a house, a housing complex called... A gaijin house. A foreigner house. 
So there was no getting around the fact that I, on a daily basis, felt like a foreigner, like an alien, like a stranger. I never, ever felt, felt part of that culture, never. They were very nice, but, but I never felt like that was home. And, and to be honest with you, it wasn't home. I never intended to stay there. So I never thought it was home. So it was kind of one hand shaking the other there, and that was okay. And I think that is what our attitude is supposed to be like, and that's why I think God calls us to that kind of attitude of being content being a foreigner, of being an outsider, of being a stranger in a strange land, as, as Robert Heinlein puts it, of being a gaijin, of being a pilgrim. That, that's what he wants us to identify with and live like. Before the Apostle Peter launches into a, a quite lengthy section in his first letter, he gives some tough, to give some tough instructions to the people of God. He tells them, I want you to live differently. And then he, he sets it up like this. He says, dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the land, to abstain from sinful desires that war against your soul. Before Peter goes into the rest of his letter, he is, he is setting the stage for how, what your attitude is supposed to be like. I'm, he's saying, I'm going to say some hard things. And he goes on to say some very hard things. But he sets the stage by saying, listen, you guys are pilgrims. And because you are strangers, your attitude, how you're going to live, is going to be totally different than the culture around you. I think he intentionally uses the language he's pulling here from Genesis 23. He's appealing to the believers in his time to live like Abraham did in his time. To live like pilgrim. And living like a pilgrim has implications on our, on our lives. One implication is that pilgrims don't live according to the customs of the land they're in. Sure, when I was over in Japan, I, I used chopsticks. Or if you travel or, or live for a brief time, I was thinking of Birgit and the Adams. They're living in a Muslim country. They dress accordingly. And so, as spiritual pilgrims, we, have to, we may adopt some of the ways of the world that are morally neutral, but we live by different standards than the world. For example, Peter goes on to let us know that God's people don't resent authority. We don't resist authority. As a matter of fact, authority is a very good thing. He goes on to talk about the government there. Yes, the government. Peter goes on to talk about marriage there. Marriage looks very different as a pilgrim. It's not about a power grab. It's not about dominating the other. It's not, it's not consumeristic, as Tim Keller puts it. I'm here as long as I get what I want, and if, if I'm not getting what I want, then I'm out. But it's a way to show humility. It's a way to... to exemplifies submission 
It's a way to serve. Well, Peter also says, as a pilgrim, suffering is totally different. Suffering is totally different. Suffering for Christ is not to be run away from, but to be expected and embraced and even rejoiced over. Suffering rejoiced over. That's acting like a pilgrim. We don't live according to the customs of the world. Another implication of living as a pilgrim is pilgrims don't get too attached to the land they're on, do they? They don't get too attached to the land they're on. One person put it this way, you would never think of investing your time and your money and the best of who you are into a hotel room that you are renting for a couple of days. That's odd to us to even think of that. But that's pilgrim thinking. What allowed wealthy Abraham to live in a, in, with the Canaanites for decades and decades without putting down any deep, deep roots? Have you ever thought about that? He was well-respected, well-connected, wealthy. He had everything he needed to put down the deep roots and say, I'm here. But he didn't. What kept him from doing that? He never got too attached to this world. You see, a real heart understanding of being a spiritual pilgrim will change your heart towards everything. You begin to realize your house is not a declaration of how successful you are, but a means to show love and hospitality to others. You realize that? That's why God has given you a home. That's why God has given you a home. Your vehicle is not an extension of your personality. If you have a pilgrim heart, you realize your job is not a means to an end. It's not an end in itself, but a means to an end. Your reputation is not something you need to protect as a pilgrim. Why? Because you're not supposed to fit in. If you're crushed by the world's drive to be beautiful on the outside, you've forgotten that as a pilgrim, the outside is so very fleeting. If you look for deep satisfaction in your possessions, those things that you can buy, that get, that you can accumulate, if that is where you're finding your deep satisfaction, you've forgotten that as a pilgrim, your possessions don't go with you to the biggest part of your journey. That brings us to the last implication is pilgrims look beyond this life. Howard Hendricks said, most people think that they're in the land of the living heading towards the land of the dead. But the truth is we're in the land of the dying headed towards the land of the living. And that's why Sarah's death does not consume Abraham's life. Yes, it's appropriate for Christians to grieve and to go through heartbreak when a loved one dies. It is totally appropriate. And we should. God has created us that way. And we see that with Abraham here. But it doesn't destroy the rest of his life. 
because he knows that this is just the beginning. As Aaron said so aptly in Sunday school, this is the title page of the rest of the book, this life. Isn't that beautiful? Abraham knew that, understood that. Abraham mourns and grieves for his beloved wife of 60 years. But just like David, when his son dies, he gets up, washes, and goes on. Why can he do that? Because he's looking beyond this life. Again, Hebrews 11 exegetes perfectly for us informs us that Abraham looked beyond this life to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He's looking beyond this life. See, Pilgrim does not hold on to life here so tightly because he knows that we are in the land of the dying headed towards the land of the living. We are sojourners and foreigners here in this world, which allows us to cope with the intricacies of life quite differently. I love how Dale Ralph Davies puts it. He writes, It's not that sojourners and pilgrims, us, don't have any emotions or ambitions, but they do seem to have a holy indifference about their possessions, a godly flexibility about the twists and turns life takes, a sanctified nonchalance over making their mark. Isn't that beautifully put? That, brothers and sisters, is what Christian maturity looks like. As pilgrims, we're called to that type of life that we so easily forget, don't we? I forget it. I love chapters like this that remind me of that I'm a pilgrim. Because we're, we're in, the, in the water that tells us, this is it. And the, the most mature of us can forget that. You've probably heard the story of when missionary Samuel Morrison came home from Africa after 25 years of service. He just happened to be on the same boat returning back from his 25 years in Africa serving God. And Teddy Roosevelt was coming back after a three-week safari. When they got to the dock... Great fanfare for Teddy Roosevelt. Samuel Morrison left the boat and he couldn't even get a cab. They were all gone. They were all taken by, by in, with the fanfare of Teddy Roosevelt leaving. Feeling quite bitter about that. He was talking to God and saying, Here I've spent 25 years of my life serving you. And Teddy Roosevelt comes home after 25 days, and he is celebrated. And I am, am forgotten. Praise God, the Spirit brought to his mind, and he wrote down, Remember, you're not home yet. The spiritual giants among us can forget that we're pilgrims. And us too. Morrison had temporarily forgotten what Abraham had learned to live like a pilgrim here on earth. 
But that does beg a question. If we're called to live this pilgrim life, it begs the question of our text. Do you see that question that comes up? Not in the text, but as you read it. So here, live like a pilgrim, don't get attached to this world, and what takes up the bulk of this chapter? The buying of land. What's going on here? Okay, we're supposed to be sojourners and pilgrims, yet verses 3 through 16 is all about haggling for this land. So, so what does that tell us? Why did he buy land? And that brings us to our second point. He was a pilgrim and living like a pilgrim, but with a promise. The oxymoron is made up of, of two words, two Greek words, that mean pointedly foolish. Like when you're told to act naturally. Like when you hear on the news that a person is found missing. Or, like maybe some of you when I preach, you're clearly confused. <laughs> or all of us have unbiased opinions. Well, here we have a nomadic land purchase. Makes no sense. Why is he doing this? Well, in a way, we could look at the last ten chapters of what we've just studied as really focusing on one promise and one promise alone. There's one lens that you can look through chapters 12 through 22 in. And that is the promise of a seed, the promise of offspring, the promise of an heir, the promise of a son that we finally saw fulfilled in chapter 20 and 21 and then 22. The promise that through Abraham, the whole world will be blessed. That's the big promise that's been focused on in the last 10 chapters. And God began fulfilling that promise with Isaac, right? Isaac. Through the blessing given from Isaac through... And that is the big promise, by the way, that is traced throughout the whole Old Testament. You want a theme to kind of grab hold, a cable to grab hold on, to walk through the Old Testament? That's the great one to grab hold on. In a way, that promise is traced throughout every book through the blessing given from Isaac. Abraham to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob to Judah, all the way to the fulfilling of the birth of the line of the tribe of Judah and Jesus Christ, right? But there's another promise that God gave Abraham back in chapter 12. And that promise is land. And we saw him reiterate that promise again and again. To this land I give your offspring. Walk around this land. This land is yours from this border to this border. Heard it from, uh, from dead to med to red. That's the promised land. It's yours. And with this chapter, we begin to see that second promise being fulfilled. That's what makes sense of, of this chapter, the bulk of this chapter. This back and forth between Abraham and the Hittites and eventually Ephraim. They're more than willing to give land, if you notice. They're more than willing to give him, to allow him to use a tomb. Did you catch that? Just take one of my tombs. They're more than willing, because of respect, and maybe something else, but for right of respect, borrow this. 
I give you this to borrow for as long as you want, but Abraham will have none of it. You notice that? Again and again, he pushes back. No, I don't want to borrow. What do I want to do? I want to buy. I want to purchase. I want to possess. And you see that in verses 4 and in verse 9 and verse 18 and verse 20. There are clues that God has placed there. Clearly wants to own property. Where? In verse 2, in verse 19, bookends it nicely. In the land of Canaan. In the promised land. Property in the promised land. This chapter marks the beginning of God fulfilling the promise of land. And here Abraham takes a great leap of faith. A great step of faith in purchasing a spiritual beachhead in the promised land. That's why he insists on purchasing, not borrowing. That's why this text, although you know you, you probably didn't pick up on this, and neither did I until I did some study, it's peppered with the legalities of the ancient culture. Look at where this takes place, at the city gate. That's where all these transactions legally had to take place. In front of everyone to, that saw it, that twice it says that. Witnesses. There's witnesses going on. And for a hefty price, 400 shekels is a year's wage. And Abraham didn't even blink at it. Ian Duguid writes, the expensive land purchase makes no sense for a wandering nomad except as a statement of Abraham's faith that one day God's promise would be fulfilled and the entire promised land would be his. So instead of taking Sarah's body back to their ancestral home in Haran, he buries her here in their future home of Canaan. Isn't that beautiful? That's what Abraham had in mind. That's why Abraham wanted to possess. He purchased because of the promise. He was looking forward to a city whose foundations and architect and builder is God. And Abraham was eventually buried there. So was Isaac and Rebekah. And eventually Jacob and Leah. Abraham saw this purchase as a deposit guaranteeing what was to come. I want to say that again. He bought this by faith as a deposit knowing the promise. He was living like a pilgrim fueled by that land promise. Do you want power to live like a pilgrim? Then you have to grasp the promise of Jesus Christ. You want to live like a pilgrim? You want, to be, you want that heart to be like we just want to step through it with possessions and house and car? You want to be, live like a pilgrim like that? You have to start with the promise of Jesus Christ. Engagements around the world are different. In Japan, there's what is called a yunyo, where the families of the bride and groom come and meet, and they exchange nine gifts to each other. Then the couple is engaged. In Thailand, there's a ceremony called the Thongmun, 
Instead of a diamond ring, the prospective groom presents the fiancé with gifts made of gold. So there's no ring. In Scotland, I'll leave it to the Scottish, in Scotland, men looking to marry are traditionally put their... <laughs> this is great. Traditionally are put through their paces during what's called a spirin, which requires them to accomplish a series of tasks set by their future father-in-law. <laughs> I would love to see that. Our custom is an engagement ring. A ring of a, is an extravagant symbol guaranteed, guaranteeing the promise of marriage in the future. And God's promise through Christ is that ring. First of all, an engagement ring is usually pretty extravagant. Not always, but usually pretty extravagant. Usually you pay for it, and it, it, it's an expensive thing to give. As with the promise of God in Christ, the promise of salvation came at an incredibly extravagant cost to God. We just walked through this. The last week was Easter, so we just walked through this so blatantly. But, but Jesus came and lived that perfect life that you and I are required to live by God's law perfectly. When Jesus answered the people in, in his Sermon on the Mount and said in, in Matthew 5.48, you want to know how to get into to God's heaven, into relationship with God, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And, and he wasn't saying that's the ideal but. He was saying that is the bar. It's perfection. If you want a relationship with God, if you want to eternal life, you have to be perfect. And what Christ did is he was born to live that perfect life. And he did, and, he, and Hebrews tells us that he was tempted all over the place, the same way we are, yet did not sin. He lived perfectly. He fulfilled God's law. Just what Brother Aaron was saying in Sunday school. He came and fulfilled that law. God creates and then fills. And he also took the punishment that we deserve. You see, sin can't just be forgiven by God. God just can't say, oh, you know what, I love you, so I'm just not even, I'm going to look the other way to your sin. God is perfectly just, and he can't do that. So he, sin needs to be paid for. And it's either going to be me or you in death or someone else. And Jesus was the someone else. He came. That's what the cross is all about. He willingly went to the cross. That's why he extended his arms. It says in the Gospels he extended his arms. This wasn't guards holding down his arm to tack the, the spikes through. He extended his arms and willingly died. Because he knew my sin needed to be paid for and he knew that your sin needed to be paid for. And he paid for that on the cross. He died and was buried. This is what we talked about last week at Easter, right? And he laid in that tomb for three days, but he rose bodily, physically, alive. And he still lives today. And by so doing, he conquered sin, the power of sin, which 1 Corinthians 15 tells us is death. 
That's the power sin has. It kills us. And the extravagant promise in Christ that is, if you believe this, if you believe what I just said, which is the gospel, you will be saved. You will go from life to eternal life. You're going from the land of the dying now to the land of the living, as Hendricks put it. But here's the hard question. Here's the hard question that Abraham asked. Is that promise real? Is the promise real? Is the land promise real? Is the promise in Christ that I just extended to you real? How do you know it's real? How do you know it's real in your life? Have you ever asked that? How do you know that, that you know, I can, I can give anybody that gospel that I just told you and say, memorize this, come back in 15 minutes and tell me. And a person can tell me. Does that mean they're saved? How do we know? Anyone can learn the gospel. How can you be sure? How can I be sure? Because the ring comes with the promise. God gave us a deposit guaranteeing a greater fulfillment. I truly hope that when I said at our public reading of Scripture, listen to these words, you listen to the words. If you have your, your bulletin there, pick up your bulletin and look at what we read today. Because the answer is right there. For no matter how many promises God made, they are yes in Christ. There's the promise. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Do you see the answer there? God gave Abraham a small wedge of land as a deposit guaranteeing the whole. God gave you and me not a small wedge of himself. He gave us all of himself in the Holy Spirit who lives inside you, who fills you, guaranteeing the life to come. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the ring with the promise. If we really understand that, that enables us to live like a pilgrim. If we really understand that, and brothers and sisters, if you don't understand what I just said, you need to come see me. Because the Holy Spirit is what confirms the words you say. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your spirit here and for your word. Change us from the inside out because of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.